Good morning. The accused killer of his wife and son takes the stand. One year to the day after Russia's special operation in Ukraine, the fallout from the train wreck in Ohio, and more on the Hanshu Agreement on police spying against peaceful protesters in New York City. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the news for Friday morning, February 24th, 2023. In breaking news, South Carolina attorney Alex Murdaugh took the stand in his own defense on Thursday, denying he killed his wife and 22-year-old son on June 7th, 2021. Mr. Murdaugh, on June 7th, 2021, did you take this gun or any gun like it? and shoot your son Paul in the chest in the feed room at your property off Moselle Road? No, I did not. Mr. Murdy, did you take this gun or any gun like it and blow your son's brains out on June 7th or any day or any time? No, I did not. Mr. Murdy, did you take 300 blackout? such as this, and fired into your wife Maggie's leg, torso, or any part of her body? No, I did not. Did you shoot a 300 blackout into her head, causing her death? Mr. Griffin, I didn't shoot my wife or my son any time. It's unusual in criminal trials for a defendant to testify on his own behalf. Prosecutors have argued Murdaugh was a thief, stealing money from clients, plotting the murders to cover up his crimes. On the stand, Murdaugh admitted repeatedly lying to investigators about seeing his son and wife shortly before the murders. He blames the lies on his addiction to opioids that clouded his judgment. Investigators haven't presented the weapon used to kill the victims, a confession, surveillance video, or bloody clothes. Murdoch faces 30 years to life in prison if convicted. Meanwhile, in world news, an Israeli raid into the West Bank city of Nablus killed 11 Palestinians and injured over 100, including 82 with gunfire. The army blocked off all entrances to the city before surrounding a home with two wanted Palestinian fighters. Nablus and nearby Janine have been the focus of violent incursions that Israel has intensified over the past year. Palestinian political parties announced a general strike in the cities of Ramallah and Nablus on Wednesday in response. Israel stepped up its military raids, arrests, and killings in Palestinian cities and villages after a hard right government took over the reins of power. The number of Palestinians killed by Israeli forces since the start of 2023 has now risen to 61 people, including 13 children in the occupied territories. And today marks one year since Russian troops entered Ukraine, entering its neighbor from three directions, a column of troops only miles from the capital of Kyiv. More troops swept out of Russian-occupied Crimea, seizing towns, cities, and Europe's largest nuclear power station. According to the Pentagon, hundreds of thousands of soldiers have died on both sides. With no peace talks on the horizon, the war could continue for years. The United States and NATO have been backing up Ukraine with ammunition, tanks, and promises of jet fighters. Stung by sanctions, Russia countered the economic warfare by opening new trade routes with neighboring China, Iran, and Georgia. 
Most recently, Russia suspended the New START anti-nuclear treaty, leaving Russia and America without an agreement controlling nuclear weapons for the first time in decades. With harsh rhetoric about using nuclear weapons by Russia's President Vladimir Putin and threats by President Joe Biden to invoke the NATO treaty's self-defense provision, known as Article 5, the West could be drawn directly into the war. The former chief of staff of Secretary of State Colin Powell, Lawrence Wilkerson, is a retired United States Army colonel. He says support of the war in Ukraine is America's greatest shame. The greatest diplomatic failure of the United States in the 20th and 21st century is not anything any American even knows about. It is that in 1991 and 92, we, the Americans, were destroying Soviet nuclear weapons. We were doing it as fast as we possibly could. We came down on both sides from roughly 30 to 40,000 warheads for them to 30,000 or so warheads for us down to around five or 6,000. Unheard of accomplishment. Then we stopped. And we were largely responsible for the stop. And then we started dismantling the treaties. And then we started thinking about, and we're going to spend a million plus, a, a trillion plus dollars over the next 10 years building new weapons. We turn the whole thing around. That is the greatest diplomatic failure in the history of this republic. Historians will write about it if they're alive when they finally realize it. That's how dangerous this is. In September, a series of clandestine bombings cut two natural gas pipelines co-owned by German and Russian energy companies. The pipelines, named Nord Stream 1 and 2, were bitterly opposed by the United States, who at first blamed Russia for attacking its own facility. In February, investigative reporter Seymour Hirsch claimed a source informed him the United States and Norway used a little-known Special Forces frogman team based in Florida to cut the pipeline. Do you want us to give you recommendations about what to do about stopping Russia that are reversible? More sanctions, economic pressure, we'd already been doing that, or irreversible, irreversible being kinetic, bomb, bomb, bang, bang. Well, it was clear very early. Since then, Hirsch has been criticized by various military and executive branch spokespersons as untrustworthy, but Colonel Wilkerson says Hirsch did the country a service by telling the truth. Psy is a man who broke me lie. Sai is a man who's rarely wrong. Sai is a man who knows how to protect his sources. What we heard from the CIA, for example, that it was all poppycock, it was all bull and so forth and so on, is what we hear from the CIA every time something like this happens. Uh, I, I, I don't fault them. They lie for a professional reason. They are professional liars. They have to be. They're spies. Um, but they're propagandists, they're public affairs people who are just as big a liars as any of their spies. So I think, Cy, I'll let you in on a little secret here. Two weeks before Cy published, I was asked a question. Who do you think did North Street? I said, it's clear to me, just from the strategic reality of it, we did it. We did it. Who else benefits? Certainly not Germany. Certainly not NATO in general, certainly not Putin. Who really benefits? We do. And then I said, I will bet you that hard hat team down in Florida, which nobody's ever heard of, but I have because I was on a working group in the government that actually contemplated using them, did it. And someone had to be 
in the know in Europe in order to do it. Because look at the pipeline. Look how it lies. Look where it lies. Look where it's shallow that it lies. Look whose coast and border it's on. <laughs> so, so I said, I have no idea who, but someone, and you can look at the map, had to be complicit. In related news, during a special meeting of the United Nations Security Council on Wednesday, Russia's ambassador, Vasily Nabensha, said Moscow has no trust in the investigations being carried out by Denmark, Sweden, and Germany of the Nord Stream attack. But he did say Russia would trust the UN investigation. We'll have more on the Security Council meeting later this week. And you're listening to the news from New York City. I'm Paul Durienzo. In more national news, Secretary of Transportation Pete Buttigieg made his first visit Thursday to the site of the rail disaster that spewed toxic chemicals in East Palestine, Ohio, taking pot shots at former President Donald Trump, who visited the day before, as the federal response to the derailment has become a hot-button political issue. The visit comes the same day an NTSB report was released saying crew members had no indication the train was in trouble until shortly before the disaster. The train's operator, Norfolk Southern, has said the report shows the company had done all it could do to prevent the accident and that levels of toxic vinyl chloride that spilled have diminished. But White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre says the administration is on top of it. We're going to hold Norfolk Southern accountable, uh, as I've mentioned. Uh, there's, uh, there's been investigating, they've been investigating what caused the derailment, monitoring for environmental and health impacts, and screening over 550 homes, as I mentioned. EPA has ordered the railroad company to clean up its mess and pay for all expenses. It, and if it doesn't, the EPA said that they'll make the company pay three times uh, more. Uh, and Secretary Buttigieg has also written uh, to Norfolk Southern to make clear that the industry's pattern of resisting safety regulations must change. Uh, and he's calling on the industry and Congress to join the administration in implementing uh, that uh, uh, in implementing uh, that approach. So look, and as you all know, as I mentioned, Secretary Buttigieg is on the ground right now. He's getting an update. Uh, and uh, we've had, again, multiple agencies on the ground. The president has stayed updated on this for the past several weeks. While he was in Poland, he spoke to uh, the important folks on the ground, the leaders, the leadership on the ground including uh, the, his leadership in those uh, in those uh, respective agencies on what was going on and getting updates and he will continue to do that and do everything that we can. Meanwhile, locals are complaining of burning eyes and other maladies they say are connected to the toxic chemical release. The Ohio Department of Natural Resources said Thursday it estimates spilled contaminants killed nearly 44,000 fish in area waterways. Mel Boer is associate editor and labor reporter for the Real News Network. She's been covering the contract negotiations with the unions representing freight rail workers. A rail strike was avoided through federal intervention earlier this year. One of the big issues was working conditions in an industry motivated by greed. These rail workers have been in the midst of really precipitous and devastating staff cuts for the last five, six years. Most of these major carriers have laid off of huge portion of their workforce across all crafts. We're not just talking about conductors and folks sitting on the trains, but we're also talking about the folks who do maintenance on the tracks themselves, who do the inspection, who do much of the upkeep of the rail infrastructure in this country. And a lot of them point to precision scheduled railroading is kind of the main sort of topic that you hear from many rail workers that I've spoken to who know that when you cut back staff, when you make it impossible for them to do their job safely, what ends up 
paying the price is the communities that these rail lines go through. And these are mostly working class communities, right? And um, these are folks who are, especially if you look at what's come down the pike from East Palestine, these working class communities are devastated by this and don't really have much of a way out in terms of picking up the pieces when a derailment like this happens. The solutions to that is lobbying efforts that rail unions have been engaged in to try and get lawmakers to institute regulations like mandatory minimums for staffing on the train, a mandatory minimum of two people. We're also talking about better hiring initiatives, tighter regulations that the federal government can engage in in order to ensure that these trains aren't as long or as heavy. We had that opportunity when there was a strike about to happen just a few weeks ago and the president of the United States put the kibosh on it. Well, this is something that rail workers at the end of the year last year had spoken to myself and Max Alvarez, who's the editor-in-chief at The Real News. You know, we've been covering the railroads for almost a year at this point. To a man, every person that we've talked to has said, this is what happens. This is what's going to happen. It will happen again unless these issues are adequately addressed. And the Biden administration, the Trump administration, the Obama administration, all of these administrations in the last 10 years have either kick the can down the road or the regulations have been rolled back or they're not tight enough to begin with. What needs to happen is not going to be fixed by just one labor contract, but there needs to be movement in a positive direction across the board. It's interesting to see workers now coming out and saying, this is dangerous. It's also helpful that we live in an age of media dissemination where things can get kind of farther past the gate than, say, even 30 or 40 years ago. And I think a lot of these workers as well have kind of positioned themselves, particularly from Railroad Workers United, which is a cross-craft caucus of rank-and-file workers, to really keep up this messaging because they care. They really, truly are, you know, lifelong railroaders who are deeply concerned about how the rail industry is running itself and how it can present such public safety hazard in communities and, you know, a hazard to the workers themselves. Improving these conditions, everyone benefits. This doesn't look so good when Biden is associated with something like this and you have the president of the United, the former president, Donald Trump, saying, why are you going to Ukraine and not dealing with this? The Trump administration gleefully rolled back the regulations on the rail industry that may have maybe not prevented a derailment of this nature, but certainly made it less severe. I think a lot of community members will know this and will maybe not feel as excited to see folks like Trump turning it into political theater. This is their lives that they're talking about. It remains to be seen if it's going to be a successful strategy on Trump's part. Mel Boer is associate editor and labor reporter for The Real News Network. And in local news, on Tuesday, New York City Mayor Eric Adams named attorney Mohammed Faridi as the first Muslim member of the NYPD panel reviewing police spying into political activity. The Council on American-Islamic Relations welcomed the appointment of Faridi to the position of civilian observer on the committee named after another lawyer, Barbara Hanshu, who began the litigation with the city in the 1970s, leading to a consent agreement on oversight of police intelligence gathering. One of the original attorneys in the case is Martin Stolar. In an exclusive interview with the news, he recounts the events that sparked the lawsuit and the significance of the Hanshu agreement. The mayor is continuing the position. He had the option of discontinuing it after five years, and he chose not to, which we think is all to the positive. Mr. Faridi 
has an excellent background for the position. He's a partner at Patterson and Belknap, which is a large firm, but he's a graduate of the City University Law School, and he's been involved in civil rights litigation. So he's perfectly capable of separating evidence from fiction. And I think he's a good choice. What exactly is this position? What does it do? And why? I guess it, you mentioned earlier that uh, it was could have been discontinued. Uh, what's the history of that? Essentially, the Hanshu Committee is an internal police department committee in the Intelligence Bureau, which authorizes the commencement, continuation, or closing of investigations that involve political activity or religious activity. Remember, where there's a mesh of criminal activity alleged along with political or criminal activity, those investigations have to be approved by a committee. Now, the committee is a group of high-ranking police department officers and lawyers within the department, and they're joined by an outside civilian. The civilian is not trained as a police officer, as a civilian's point of view, and is not jaundiced by the same kinds of internal divisions or attitudes that might govern the way the police look at things. Our experience in the last five years with Judge Robinson, who was a civilian representative, is that he served to sharpen their investigative activities. He was able to get them to sharpen up any allegations that they made about activity, get them to reject certain investigations. And while he didn't find any activities that he found were really over the edge, he served as an important reminder that the police department is subject to civilian oversight. How did that apply to the recent George Floyd protests? The Floyd protests and most of the arrests during Floyd were the result of demonstration activity. Um, and the intelligence division, in theory, is not involved in investigating people who are involved in political demonstration activity. So you had you know, several thousand arrests. A lot of them were for curfew violations um, or for disorderly conduct. And there's really the intelligence division is not involved in that. I see. What uh, the- they, certainly, they certainly were involved in finding and putting undercover agents in or infiltrators into cases where they thought there was some kind of criminal activity and succeeded in doing that in a couple of cases, some of which are questionable. Um, But uh, they didn't go overboard in the way they did with the Muslim community, which resulted in all the litigation that resulted in the establishment of having the civilian be subject to, uh, uh, call them to be subject to civilian oversight. What has it become, especially since 9-11, it's become more watching on the Muslim community? sort of unprecedented when it was filed in 1971 and when it was settled in 1985 it established what was known as an authority which consisted of two high-ranking police officers and a civilian appointed by the mayor and they operated with civilian oversight on what the intelligence division what was then called the intelligence division could do the rule said you cannot investigate any kind of political activity except through the intelligence division And this oversight group, the authority, was presumed to obtain the oversight, to keep the oversight, to keep them in line, to avoid the abuses that they had done 
in collecting political intelligence, infiltrating political groups, and collecting dossiers and files. So the Ninth Precinct in the Lower East Side, where there's a lot of political activists, can't just go off half-cocked and do a political investigation without it going through, as they might have been able to do in the past. That's correct. They were restrained from just investigating pure political activity. They had to make some kind of an allegation that the people that they claimed to investigate politically were involved in some kind of criminal activity. Um, and then they can justify or attempt to justify the investigation. Rudy Giuliani appointed this guy, David Cohen, who had a total background in the CIA and certainly no respect for the Bill of Rights, to be the head of the, new, of the intelligence division. And he then lost no time in coming to federal court and saying, abolish these guidelines, abolish the authority. They're hampering our ability to investigate terrorism. And in the, with the stench of 9-11 still hanging over the federal courthouse where we were hearing arguments about this, it was a close question. We succeeded in at least retaining a version of the guidelines as part of the court order. But the role of the authority and the role of the civilian was eliminated. And now investigations were commenced, continued, or closed solely on the word of an internal intangible committee, which was chaired by the commissioner of the deputy commissioner for intelligence, in this case, David Cohen. Naturally, this was ran to the overboard investigation and surveillance of the entire Muslim community in New York. A total overboard investigation of anybody who was Muslim because they might be connected to, quote, terrorism, unquote, a series of investigations that were exposed by a couple of AP reporters in 2017 or so. That led to us going back to the federal court and saying, hey, judge, they can't be trusted. Look what they've done. They violated every precept. They, they're investigating millions of, or hundreds of thousands of people with no connection to criminal activity. They're investigating every Muslim restaurant and eatery and community place in the city and mosque. They're putting undercover agents in, using infiltrators. They're doing all the things that they said they wouldn't do. So we got to stop it. We went back to court and a new lawsuit was commenced in Brooklyn by a group of Muslim individuals and organizations called Raza versus the city of New York. And they were then both combined, and we got a new set of guidelines as a result of that collaboration. The new committee that approves guidelines or that approves or commences a continuation or closing of investigations now must contain the civilian representative. He's got a voice and he's ordered to report any violations of the guidelines to the federal court so that the police department operates with this little sort of a, a hook over their shoulder saying you better behave yourself or else we're going to tell the federal judge that you're not doing so. Hopefully that will restrain some of the excesses that they're prone to. New York Attorney Martin Stolar on the Hanshu Guidelines for Police Spying. The Hanshu Guidelines were virtually scrapped after 9-11, but reports of untrammeled spying by the NYPD prompted new lawsuits and a reinvigorated Hanshu board. And that's some of the news for Friday morning, February 24th, 2023. The news is produced by this reporter. You can catch the news at pauldirienzo.com. From New York City, I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening. <laughs>